2: Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I am here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hey you guys. Hey Aaron. What's doing for the show today? Uh we have been doing the show for a long time, which means this is not the first episode about a book about Elon Musk it may not even be in like single digits numbers of those where th- there's definitely been a few, but I really wanted to talk to this person. My guest is Zoe Schiffer. She runs platformer with Casey Newton. She was uh, at the verge for a long time. She was responsible for many of these scoops within Twitter during the Elon Musk period that set off certain waves of paranoia, recrimination and, possibly some witch hunts within the company for her sources. So it's a, a fascinating story that is only a couple years old now and was even less old than that when she started on a book on it. It's like stuff I remember happening like it was like yesterday and I was curious what it was like to write a book on a tight deadline like that, what it was like to write a book about a story that is still in some ways evolving, though may have peaked in the moment, and also interesting to talk to someone about running a very small newsletter business. Not small in terms of how many people it reaches, but small in terms of how many people are working on it. So uh, lots of good stuff in this one. I feel like this is hitting like multiple subgenres of your Long Farm podcast history. You've done lots of episodes on the Quick Turn book, and you're very interested in the uh, small number of people large reach newsletter game why am i so interested in the quick turnaround book i think it's the same reason i like will always click on the like um before and after like in six weeks he got completely shredded <laughs> kind of uh, yeah. advertisements. advertisement totally I have a fantasy of changing my own life during a quick book turnaround timing. You have also almost done like nine quick book turnaround projects yourself. Well, it's true. I haven't spoken much on the show about this, but I used to be a ghostwriter when I was in my 20s, so I'm very familiar with the (laughs) quick turnaround book, and I consider it a a challenge and uh, a a privilege. Uh, So um, this episode is brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make this show. And now here's Aaron with Zoe Schiffer. Hey, Zoe Schiffer.
3: Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me here.
2: Welcome. Uh, You have a new book out. It's called Extremely Hardcore Inside Elon Musk's Twitter. I do want to talk about that book, but first I kind of want to talk about your day job, which I think led to the book. So what do you do professionally other than writing this book?
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm the managing editor at Platformer, which used to be a Substack investigative newsletter. Now we've <laughs> since moved to Ghost for reasons we can or cannot get into, <laughs> don't have to. But yeah, my, my job is basically editing Casey Newton's work, in the week. And then when I have a big scoop, I take over the column and I write it. So it's a mix of reporting and editing.
2: How long have you been doing that?
3: I've been doing it for about a year and a half. Casey actually hired me at The Verge for my first ever job in journalism. When I started, I was kind of his assistant and then I became a feature writer. And then when he started the Substack, he hired me away from The Verge. So I joined him there.
2: At the time you were like thinking about leaving The Verge which is like a steady job that like has like a 100% chance of meeting payroll next time. Like, uh, How did you consider that decision to go work on something that was much newer and had a lot more risks involved, quite frankly?
3: Yeah, I mean- my career has been a little unusual because I started out working in the tech industry and making obviously really good money. And when I decided to switch and become a journalist, which is what I'd really wanted to do the whole time, it was a really not money motivated decision and not a stability motivated decision. It was kind of a decision that I made knowing that I would make a lot less than I'd been making. My career prospects would be a lot shakier. Like it was, there was a lot of risk involved in that. And so once I made that leap, I feel like it really freed me for every subsequent decision to be purely about where can I do the best possible work. And I really thrive in a writing partnership. And Casey and I work really, really well together. We co-byline stories all of the time. And so I knew that we would be able to write the kind of stories that I wanted to write. And, and to me, that in journalism is kind of the only real stability that you can depend on. You're only as good as your last great story.
2: So it's interesting. I think of what platformer does and sort of the beat as being covering the tech industry, but often through the lens of the people who work in the tech industry, the people who make the tech industry. And that is like something you've done on both sides of the CMS. What were you doing when you worked in tech and, and what was your decision to leave like?
3: Yeah, I so when I was in tech, I was working as a writer. My first job was basically copywriting (laughs) and marketing copy, and then I worked as a ghostwriter for a CEO. And then I went to Uber and was working as a writer on the design team. So, all of the words that you'd see in the app, I would kind of partner with designers and figure out what they should say. And it was random that when I started my career in journalism, I was writing about tech in the sense that I'm not like particularly gadgety, I don't like love every new technology, but I am really interested in people. And I think the people in the tech industry are really fascinating. And it was just like the world that I was immersed in. I went to undergraduate and graduate school in the Bay Area. And it felt like the place where you could kind of have a niche, you could have an angle as a writer. And if you got in and figured out like who the people were who were having influence at these companies and write about them and the people that they had power over, the people who had less power under them, you could make a name for yourself kind of quickly as a journalist.
2: Um, I think the first times that I became aware of your byline was scoops within Twitter in the early days of Elon Musk coming in, many of which are like moments that are later echoed in your book. But at this point, the book was just a glimmer in your eye. And um, additionally, people had really no idea where the like events that Twitter were leading. So like, what were those early scoops? And and how did you get them?
3: Yeah, I mean, from April 2022, when Elon Musk first floated the idea of buying Twitter, it was clear that that was kind of I mean, for a tech journalist, that was like our Super Bowl. It was like all hands on deck. If you could get an in into that story, you definitely wanted to do it because kind of no matter what happened, it was going to be really interesting. And I think like as we saw over the summer when he actually made an offer and then he retracted it supposedly and he sued Twitter and Twitter sued him back. Like the saga just became more and more hilarious and intense and sad and all of these things. And all of those months, I was trying to find an in. I'd never reported on Twitter. And and the way that I've always done reporting is kind of going to where the biggest story of the day is, which is great because your stories always get a lot of attention and you feel like you're doing something really important, but it sucks because I'm always sourcing up from scratch. And on the Twitter beat in particular, at that time, it was just so competitive. So I was trying over summer to find an in and not an in where I was going to be, you know, rehashing other people's reporting, but like how can I get a scoop that really makes my name get out there so that other Twitter employees will like tell me their secrets essentially. And the first way that that happened was that someone at the company told me that um, Twitter had been considering launching an OnlyFans competitor to kind of take advantage of adult content on the platform And that that project had been shuttered because the researchers realized that Twitter had a problem with child sexual exploitation material that it hadn't quite gotten a handle on. At the time, that felt like just such a good story, the fact that this company that had always struggled to be profitable to monetize its products had like found this one niche, but then been unable to actually go for it because it had a child pornography problem that was like so horrifying. And so by the time we got all of those documents, I called Casey up actually and said, hey, would you co-byline this with me? Because I knew he had access and sourcing at the higher levels of the company that I didn't. I kind of was going from the bottom up and he could go more from the top down. So we wrote it together and that led to a series of kind of scoops that we were able to get as the deal inched closer to closing.
2: When things are taking like a turn of events where it's like, oh, Twitter might make their own only fan. Like these are such incredibly improbable events. It's like if you told me that like um, TGI Fridays was going to like open a swing club or something <laughs> like it just it, it's it's. Almost like when you're getting this kind of information from within the company, are you ever worried? Like, am I getting like punked here? Like, like oh, yeah. how crazy a thing would have you believed coming out of Twitter at that point?
3: I mean, yeah, absolutely. And particularly having worked in tech, I'm really suspicious of someone being like, oh, the company is considering doing this. I'm like, what does that mean? Were there 12 people sitting in a meeting where they talked about some outlandish idea? Because I know how tech companies work. I've been in those rooms and I've seen people throw out ideas that were never going to see the light of day. For me, it always comes down to the documents. If someone tells me something that's interesting, of course, I'm curious to learn more. But if someone sends me a cache of documents then I'm like, okay, we have something to work with. And with this story in particular, it started with the documents. And so that was my way in. It was a, essentially a data dump that I was looking through hundreds of slides and images and figuring out like, what is the story here? And when I got to the slides where they had gotten pretty far in the process of plating out this old competitor, I immediately was like, that's the story. That's what this is. The person that was sending them to me, I don't think was even necessarily aware that that was the story.
2: Usually, when people are talking about their sources, it has that like email, text message, in-person conversation kind of flavor. How do the stakes change when people are actually like moving documents between their computer and your computer? And like, how does a document end up in your hands?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's really complicated because as a reporter, we're not allowed to say like, send me confidential documents. You know, It's a no-no to ask someone to like go out and find secret information for you. And so the area of reporting that I've been in and that I've been in from the very first feature that I ever wrote is just so contentious that I've gotten pretty, I guess, strict (laughs) with sourcing where it's like, if you tell me a story that's fine. But if you want to be anonymous, that's just not going to be enough. I need to have multiple people in the room who witnessed it. And ideally I need documentation to back it up because I'm not going to put my name on the line unless I'm damn sure that the story is accurate and that it happened in the way that you're relaying it to me. But I always start out with sources talking completely off the record because I think particularly when you're talking to people who are at really powerful organizations, but they themselves lack a lot of institutional power. It's important to say like, you know, look, we can talk. I won't take notes. I just want to get a sense of who you are, what your story is and what my interest in this could be. And then I think I get down to like, okay, is there really a story here? And if there is, do you have evidence to back it up? Um, usually if a story is has been like thinking about a particular story or like there's some wrongdoing that they're really upset about. They've been gathering evidence on their own. And so it's a pretty easy exchange. And then there are people who will never screenshot anything, have never taken a note in their life and they can be more kind of like texture and tonal sources, but they're not going to be the root of your next
2: story. Is that something like you sort of are able to profile people? Like when you meet people, like you're like, sorting them into buckets of like what kind of a relationship you might have? Because um, when you're working in like a really like tight time framework, like this Twitter thing was like a lot of these things were being published like hours after they happened. Who are you prioritizing and and what relationships do you feel like are the most fruitful in a situation like that?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think you'll always have the sources who are like, they're into the project, I guess, for lack of a better term, they're like, they know that it's important to be first on a story. They know that if there's an all hands meeting, you're going to want a recording. And so they're like, anticipating that and sending it to you in advance. I mean, that's like the absolute ideal source. And it doesn't always happen like that. But with Twitter in particular, I think there was so little loyalty toward Elon Musk. And so much desire to like get the real story of what was happening out there that we were able to kind of identify people who were, I think, pretty proactive in terms of like gathering the information and relaying it to us. And we were also saying, you know, this thing is on the calendar. Are you going to be at this meeting or are you going to witness this event? And if so, can we chat right after? And we were kind of scheduling stuff in advance so that as soon as the meeting ended, the project launched, whatever it was, we were able to get a story out really, really fast.
2: And a lot of people who work in these companies must read Platformer, which makes it a like yeah. full feedback loop of people are finding out what's happening at their company, sometimes from reporting about the company.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there were jokes on Slack that like we were the internal communications team because they didn't have one at the time. And and yeah, I mean, we were really prioritizing scoops at this point too. I think there's different times for different types of reporting and there's incredible long form investigative work that like the Wall Street Journal has done since, but definitely in the early days of the acquisition, what I cared about was being first on everything. And so if that meant that we were breaking news on Twitter, that's what we were doing. And we were like, We'll be first, we'll follow up with a story later, but there was so much iterative news happening that was like a tiny, every time Elon Musk sent an email in the early days of the acquisition, that was a story. But was it a story that need, or that was news? Did it need to be like a fully fleshed out story? Like probably not. And so we would just try and like break the news first on Twitter and then kind of have a thread about it or follow up with a more in-depth story the next day.
0: that's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with AMX. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.
2: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until
0: the Singapore presentation is at
3: 3 a.m.
2: The office was shocked.
0: But <laughs> that's when we sleep.
2: Maya made it less scary with Canva.
0: (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime.
2: Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at Canva.com. Designed for work. How long after the day Elon Musk walked in with the sink were you Pitching a book about Elon Musk walking in with the sink.
3: You know what's so funny about this whole like book project in particular is I didn't even it wasn't even on my radar until like January of twenty three because the story was moving so fast and it was so unclear where it was going to end up that I was like how could I possibly pitch a book right now and I'd had it in my head that I really did want to write a book in the next couple years but. I wanted to see kind of how things played out. And then by January, when I was like, okay, I'm I'm curious about this, like three other Twitter books had already been sold and I was really late (laughs) to the whole project. Right. So then it was a question of like, well, am I too late? Is this even worth pursuing anymore? But I thought like, no, I think I can do it. And I think if I just work my ass off, I can actually be first on this. And So that was kind of my mission over the summer
2: this is not like a rare thing, right? Like another example was like uh, when the FTX collapse happened, it was like the next day it was like, there's a Michael Lewis book and three movies and two podcasts. And I think for me, it can take some of the excitement out of things in terms of wanting to work on things. If you know there's a bunch of other people doing exactly the same thing you are like, how did you think about the competition? If at all, and like, in considering your book, were you thinking at all about what other people's books would be like?
3: Yeah, I was completely terrified. I mean, when I decided to write it and I was like, okay, we're going by then I was, I was at least four months behind the last person who'd signed the book deal. So I was like, I'm getting a late start. And also most of the other people who were writing books were working in teams. And so that was really intimidating to me too. i begged Casey to write the book with me. And he, his priority is growing platform, which is totally fine. But it really was this decision where I was like, okay, if I'm going to do it, I have to do it solo. But I guess for me, the competition was incredibly motivating because the book project felt like such a huge project that I... I was like, I can run at this and I can try, I can have a deadline of like, I wanted to get the book in by October. So give myself kind of like five or six months to write it. Cause I've done most of the reporting already over the last six months. But if one of the other books comes out before I'm done writing I just felt like all of the momentum was going to leave. And then I was going to be stuck trying to like plodding towards this horrible project where I already knew it wasn't going to be as good. And I was like, that's not the situation I want to be in. I don't want to write the like 500 page version of this. I want to write the complete story and make it as interesting as possible. But I just want it to be like the best possible snapshot in time and also come out in a time when people still give a fuck about this project. Like, I don't know if people are going to care as much in a year or two years from now.
2: Yeah, it's funny. There's a narrow band of events that would qualify for a book that comes out immediately about them. And I think one of the hardest things to gauge is when things are happening in real time, whether it is or is not one of those things. I'm consistently wrong. Like If you asked me to like grade the like gravity of the news, I'm very, very often wrong. But when you decide to write a book like this, you sort of are gambling on how people are going to feel about those events. In this case, it sounds like basically one year later.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I knew that the small, not like edge that I had, but I knew that my angle was automatically going to be different from some of the other books. And it was going to provide something that people hadn't seen before, because I wanted to tell the story through the story of four employees, some of whom I hoped had like bought into Elon Musk's vision of what Twitter could be, and some of whom basically hated him from the beginning and just figure out like what happened to these people over time. And so when I identified those four people, I was kind of like, okay, no matter what happens, I think people will be interested in like what it was like living through these events. And I also think the other books will not have that because they're not going to have the exact same sourcing as me.
2: Let's talk about those four characters, because that's probably like the most notable, like organizational principle. It's got kind of like a A lot of like early cable shows kind of had this format where it like, you know, each chapter is from another, the next person's perspective. It's kind of lost influenced and who you choose those people to be is like a huge, huge influence on what the book is. Right. So how did you pick them and and did you have more people when you started and have then winnow it down or?
3: Yeah, so my kind of core characters are Randall Lynn, who's this engineer who really bought into Elon Musk's vision of Twitter 2.0, and then this former global director of Twitter's command center, which is kind of the nervous system of the whole organization, this man named JP Doherty. And JP is just like a really stand-up person. He's a dad to two kids with special needs, and he was staying at the company um, basically because his kids needed his healthcare for these surgeries that they were having. And so I thought that those two people would provide really different perspectives, but perspectives that had um, kind of echoes at the mass employee level. So there were a lot of people who did buy into Elon Musk's vision and I wanted that to be brought forward in the book. And then there were a lot of people who, maybe started out neutral or started out a little negative, but then just got very, very disillusioned over the time and basically thought that Elon Musk was fundamentally bad and doing very bad things for the platform and then the world at large. The hard character, I guess, to find was always going to be Randall because people who were really bought into Elon Musk's vision are not people who are fans of my work or want to talk to me basically ever. And I'd heard Randall's name repeatedly because he was kind of rising up the ranks really, really fast in Twitter 2.0. And people were kind of saying, oh, he's getting tapped to be on all of Elon Musk's top projects, this guy. And then in January, a couple people texted me at the same time and said, oh, that engineer who was so popular with Elon, he was actually fired. And supposedly he was fired for leaking. And I was like, "Oh, that's really interesting." You're like, that doesn't <laughs>
2: hello. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have
3: reached out to him, but no, he, yeah. um, you know, I didn't do anything immediately with that information. But I was kind of like, "Oh, that's curious." And then about a week later, I actually got a call. He sent me a message, and I asked if we could Facetime because I didn't fully believe that it was him. And it and it was Randall. It was he was kind of pacing outside on the sidewalk in San Francisco, and he was really anxious and really upset. And basically, what he told me is that he'd been. Fired for leaking information to me, supposedly. They were very, very upset. Elon Musk was furious about the series of scoops that I'd gotten related to his kind of declining view count. And there was a mandate to find the leaker, and someone had identified Randall. Randall and I had never spoken. So this was kind of surprising to him and surprising to me. And he was kind of like, Why do they think this is happening? You know, can you help clear my name? What should I do? And I was like, I can't really get involved and you know I don't I don't know what to tell you I would never tell anyone that we'd spoken we genuinely had not but this was also around the time that I was making the decision about whether to write the book and write it solo without Casey and I thought you know if I can get him to be involved in the project then I feel like I can write a really good book because I knew I had people on the other side who could provide that other viewpoint of the kind of disillusionment and disappointment in what Twitter had become and what Elon Musk had done But I didn't have anyone who'd been so enthusiastic and so tight with Elon throughout the acquisition and the months that followed. And so I gave him like the hard pitch. I actually flew to San Francisco to meet him in person. I live in Santa Barbara. And I was like, you left in this kind of inglorious way. You had this incredible rise at Twitter. And then you were blamed for something you didn't do. Like, If we tell the ins and outs of that story, obviously it would benefit me. But I think there's actually benefit to you as well. and He thought about it and ultimately agreed. And at that point, I kind of knew who else I needed to fill out the narrative.
2: All right. I want to zoom back there to the moment where he gets accused of leaking to you, which was not actually happening. So, you know, pass on the question if you feel like this would put anything uh, in jeopardy. But does that mean he was accused of doing the leaking that someone else was doing to you who was still at the company and you had to navigate? that situation with its sort of triangulating effects to the Randall Lynn situation?
3: I mean, what was so funny about the whole story was that I was hearing that they were trying to find the leaker and Elon Musk in this meeting had, you know, he doesn't really yell or raise his voice, but he'd made, he'd like banged his fist on the table and said like, find the leaker. It got really serious in this moment, kind of in the early January, February period of 2023. And even that concept was so hilarious to me because I was like, if we had one person, if there was a leaker, like we wouldn't have stories. This wouldn't be happening. That person probably would have gotten randomly fired in one of the many rounds of layoffs. And if they hadn't, like, you can't write a story with one single anonymous source. That's just not how it works. So we had many, many people (laughs) talking to us all the time. And when someone told us information, we were able to corroborate it with a lot of other people. So the whole um, conceit was kind of flawed and showed a misunderstanding of how journalism works. So yeah, I didn't have a huge concern that they were going to like then identify my one true source. It seemed like we
2: fired Randall, but the leaks keep (laughs) coming. We got to get him back here to help find the real leaker.
3: Yeah. I (laughs) mean it was so ridiculous. And then, At one point, Elon Musk started tweeting about my stories and saying that my source was a disgruntled Twitter employee who'd gone to work at Google. And I genuinely was like, that doesn't fit the profile of anyone I've ever talked to. Like, he is just making stuff up. And this was something we had heard from Twitter employees all along. They would say, with Elon, you don't need the right answer. You need the least fireable answer. And sometimes that's a made up answer.
2: So you go out, you pitch the book. Like, what's the reaction to something like this that just happened? What are the dynamics of trying to convince someone that it should be turned into a book? Not just a book, but like the fourth book.
3: My experience was really unique because my agent in January had been like, you know, is this something you're interested in? And I was like, yes, but I don't, I just feel like I'm really late. I don't know if I can compete with all of the other books. But then separately, Portfolio, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House, approached me and said essentially, like, if you want to write this book, we'll buy it and you don't have to pitch it around. And so at that point, I kind of knew if I wanted to do it, I had a home for it. Originally, they'd approached me and Casey. Casey didn't want to do it. And so I said, like, look, I, I would do it solo. And they were like, okay. So I didn't... My... Book proposal, I think the ones that I was given as like examples were like 50 pages and they were so incredible and fleshed out. And mine was like a little book report. I was like, here's the story. Here's what I've done. Here's what I want to do. If you want to buy it, I'm game. And they were like, yes.
2: You caught some pretty lucky breaks in this process. You identified your number one leaker source and then he randomly got fired for not leaking to you, which led him to want to talk to you. And then someone came to you and was basically like, I'll buy this book from you there's almost nothing you could say that will kill this deal
3: yes but I also have to say that like I put myself in that position again 100%. because I was writing and working my ass off but yes I will like if Randall hadn't agreed to talk I don't think I would have done the book if I'd had to like pitch around a proposal and beg people to take me on as the fourth book like I don't know if I would have done it so it was kind of a confluence a good
2: no I mean all of those things it's incorrect to say luck because it takes years of work to be in the position that someone who wants to talk about something knows to find your email. You can't like get that out in like a um, sponsored ad in someone's newsletter. Like there's a bunch of things that have to sort of get internalized within a company (laughs) for that to be a common knowledge that like there's this person named Zoe that you can write an email to. You might know her as the person you got fired for not leaking to.
3: Right, which I was gonna say, like even being the person where it's a fireable offense to leak to you, I feel like is kind of a badge of honor. Although I would never wish that on any actual source.
2: So, when you started um, moving beyond the like book report version of the book, what were the things that you didn't already know that you felt like you needed to like get to make this a book? Like, was most of it already in the reporting you had done, or were there mysteries and blank spots that had to be filled in?
3: There were definitely mysteries and blank spots. And I didn't want to just like rehash reporting that I'd already done. So I knew there were going to be like certain big scoops that I wanted to flesh out in a more like well-rounded way, I guess, for the book. But there was also a lot that I didn't have. And then I had these like big open questions around like, is Elon Musk really technically savvy and Twitter engineers just like to shit all over him? And Does he have some like grand plan? Is this part of a big strategy or is he just like flying by the seat of his pants? And I I didn't know the answer to those questions at the outset. So on like a really practical mechanical level, the first thing I did was write a very, very detailed timeline of all of the events with like everything that had happened and then kind of write out who are the sources who I know, like know firsthand what happened at these specific meetings and what are the areas where I need new sourcing? And then there was a whole kind of beginning of the book was always going to rely on these court documents. And so that I needed to go back and just do a ton of research and close reading because you and I had both seen like the lawsuit that Twitter brought against Elon Musk, the lawsuit that he brought against Twitter and all of the documents that were exposed in discovery. But I kind of like, you know, flitted through them this time. I really needed to come through them and figure out like, how can I create a narrative From these documents, because most of the people involved were involved in very contentious litigation, still, and they weren't going to speak to me.
2: I remember the moment I first looked at some of the text message exchanges that were in those court documents. Uh, The one that comes to mind is the him texting with um, Sam Bankman Freed, where he's like, "Does this guy have money?" And it's like, "He's got money, bro!" And he's like, "For real, though." And just feeling like I was like plugged into the mainframe of the world it just felt so intimate like there's something a little uncomfortable about it but also it felt like the dawn of like a new modern era where there's almost more data than can possibly be taken in like how did you deal with these sort of too much um elements of this story
3: Yeah, it was a lot. And um, I had 1000s of pages of paper around me at all times, because I wanted to be able to like hold the physical like the text messages, I had like a binder and would go through and be like, what are the ones that I think I have to pull out? Because they're so funny. And when I signed the book contract, a week later went on book leave. And then I basically didn't have a summer like I didn't spend a lot of time with my family. I didn't see friends like I was like, this is my world and I have to do this. I worked Saturday and Sunday for like four months. So yeah, it was like seven days a week and really intense. And I brought in help along the way, like particularly with the timeline when I kind of had the structure, but then I wanted all of the tweets to go along with it. I've got a research assistant from Stanford graduate school who kind of helped me do that part of it. And when I needed a breakdown on the finances, I was able to call like Matt Levine and be like, can you just make sure that my understanding of this is like your understanding of this? And he was really, really helpful. So I was able to kind of call in favors from friends and then actually like pay people to help me out with the project.
2: Did you find like contradictory accounts, like where people were tweeting some, this and this is happening, but a source who was actually there said this was happening. Like, I'm curious how you dealt with that.
3: Yeah, there was a ton of that, particularly because Elon Musk, you know, tweets all the time and and a lot of what he says, you do need to fact check, like even something as basic as him say, announcing like a project is underway. It's not totally clear whether that's actually happening inside the company or whether he's just saying it's happening. And so there was a lot of, okay, these are the events from Elon Musk's perspective, (laughs) these are the events from my sources perspective. And this is what the documents say. And when are there discrepancies between those things? And then it was just a matter of like, do I talk about those discrepancies in the book and kind of let the reader in and just like decide what they think? Or do I feel like, you know, if six people are in a room talking about what happened and Elon Musk has a different account, I'm probably going to trust the six people who I've talked to extensively over the last year and go with their account of the events.
2: This is kind of an aside, but I was thinking about that quality of uh, Elon Musk of like announcing something and acting like it's happening, but it's kind of unclear whether it's like happening or he just thought of it and he's thinking about it happening. And do you think people who have the means to do almost anything, to do big things in the world, there's a a temptation to say the thing in advance and see how people react and then decide whether to do it.
3: Yeah. yeah I, yes. I mean, I think that there's, there's not a strategy behind it of like, let me beta test and see what people think if they have a good reaction to this or a bad reaction, I'll act accordingly. I mean, he's certainly tweeting out Twitter polls all the time in a more like obvious example of that. But I think so much of the time, Elon Musk, thinks about something, he acts on it, and then all of his minions have to make it a reality. And so it is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, there were countless examples of him saying a project was underway. And that was, the engineers would say like, our product roadmap is essentially just like looking at Elon's tweets. And a lot of the time he was able to kind of make reality happen simply by saying it was going to, and then everyone else having to execute.
2: Do your like opinions and attitudes about this stuff like change over time? Like, is Elon Musk like an evolving figure for you or are you kind of like, I know what's going on, but like facts of today change, but the whole thing is basically the same always.
3: No, I mean, I think this is just my personality that I'm constantly recalibrating. And like, you know, I'm like, I surely don't know the whole story here. Like there must be more to figure out and, and there must be new information to get. So I think that's kind of my natural orientation with Elon Musk specifically i feel like some of the early assumptions that i made that i was kind of like testing out the whole time like oh this person seems really erratic they seem like they might even possibly be on drugs like who's in the office at 3am kind of like pacing around and tweeting all the time like that's not doesn't seem necessarily like a healthy individual to me um i think those like have- we could we
2: could say the same of some of the technology press but yes go on
3: Absolutely. No, yeah, not to say that we're better or or don't have these same habits. But yeah, I, I think it's interesting with Elon, particularly because I'm never going to have access to him. And I'm never going to have access to like his brother, truly the people closest to him, I'm going to have access to the people kind of one layer down who witness a lot of his behavior, and are impacted by his behavior, but they're also guessing. And to me, that's, he's not really even the most interesting character. Like I'm interested in the ramifications of his actions, but there's already a biography of Elon Musk. So that wasn't the project from the outset.
2: It's funny. It's like, not only is there already a biography of Elon Musk, I think I read a, a biography of Elon Musk 10 years ago. I think Ashley oh, yeah. Vance. Ashley was yeah, Ashley Vance, great kind of like- biography. <laughs> It's kind of like buying Bitcoin early. It's like, hey, if you wrote a book in 2013, you could actually go get multiple interviews with Elon Musk. It was very, very cheap comparatively as a uh, reporting task. Yeah. Did you have any worries, like, you know, in going and doing this book about what you would be coming back to, like, you know, a platformer and stuff? Like, you described, like, Casey is like feeling like hey I'm full steam on this business how did you negotiate that with him and what were your the considerations for you
3: honestly it's been really difficult I will say like leaving and coming back not because the job's not there because Casey's incredibly supportive of my work and he has been since day one and particularly with the book like he gave me book leave. So it's not like I'm getting paid for that period, but he was like, you know, take the time you need to write it, come back when you're ready. And so I was able to kind of fully focus on the book for five or six months and then come back and kind of edit it while I was back at Platformer. But the start stop of like having so much momentum in my reporting and then leaving because I had a baby two years ago and then coming back and then getting a ton of momentum and then leaving to write the book and coming back is really, really difficult. And I think, that is an issue, I guess, that I haven't figured out. I'm pregnant again right now. And I have this like deep sense of doom around having to like take yet more time off to have a baby, even though it's like, you know, so fulfilling in a completely separate way. But the industry doesn't, in my experience, have a ton of support for that type of career. I feel like I'm really starting from scratch every time I come in and I'm trying to figure out what am I going to report on? How am I going to source up? And until I start, you know, kind of getting in the groove of kind of a vein of stories that's going to be really scoopy and fruitful, it just feels like existential agony and like my career is done and I'm never going to <laughs> get it back. So you're talking to me when I'm in uh, that period.
2: I don't mean to pile on this topic, but like, I feel like the tech industry is particularly difficult because two years is like uh, 1000 years You know, like it's just huge turnover of people, huge turnover of industry narrative. You're in kind of like unprecedented territory if you leave and come back even a year later.
3: Oh, yeah, completely. Which, I mean, that's the part that is comforting to me because the reality is even if I hadn't written the book and I just stayed reporting on Twitter, like, or X as it's now called, like it wouldn't have been the same story as it was before. And it's not... The most interesting story of the day to me. If I if I was reporting on Elon Musk, I'd want to be reporting on Tesla and SpaceX and kind of him as a leader overall, not what's going on inside you know the company that Linda Yaccarino is now the CEO of. Like that's just fundamentally a lot less interesting than it used to be, and I think there's a lot less appetite for it. But at the same time, yeah, it's incredibly jarring to take six months off work completely and then come back and be like, oh, no one gives a shit about Twitter anymore. Also, generative AI is the new thing. And if you're not writing about that, you're basically irrelevant. It's like, whoa, (laughs) it's scary.
2: I mean, like, you've been through already a few cycles of industry hype. Like, what advice would you have for someone who's like, really want to do this kind of work? Don't really understand AI because I've not really spent a lot of time reading about it so far.
3: I mean, I just read everything I can. One great thing about working at Platformer is we have a column that comes out three days a week, but the bottom half of that column is just like all of the great stories. It's like links to the best stories on the internet that day. And so I don't do that part, but for a long time I did. And I was just in the habit of like reading every single thing. And now I kind of force myself to do it in slow moments because I'm like, okay, well, if I'm not going to have a scoop today, then I... Sure, as hell, have to know what's going on and what I want to be writing about and what stories I'm jealous of. So I just read as much as possible. And I have conversations with people who are never going to give me good scoops, but I'm just kind of like, okay, we're at this point in the industry. And I've seen this before where if you're working on generative AI, you're really fucking happy right now. Your stock is like going to be worth a ton of money. You're at the center of the universe in terms of what tech is producing. And so you've got a cush job, you're excited, you're not leaking about like all of the horrible things that are happening. But I've seen this play out before. And I do know that like that will change. And particularly when you're looking at angles like trust and safety, you're talking to people who are trying to not slow things down, but, you know, be responsible in how this technology is developed. And so I'm kind of like, okay, I'll I'll have these conversations. And there will be a time when the tide changes a little bit and people are willing to speak out a little more. And at that point I will be primed to get the story that I want to get.
2: Are you interested in talking about platformer um, leaving Substack? Yeah. So um, platformer and many other publications that people who have been on the show, I think um, ask a swole woman is also left Substack. There's an exodus of primarily like, small one, two, three person operations that basically built their business on top of Substack leaving to, it seems primarily, I think you said you went to Ghost, Beehive seems popular, button down for the minimalists. I know this is really boring if you don't work in the media. And I imagine for you as someone who actually produces this, this is like a huge lift for you. Like I feel like kind of like you built a cabin and then you had to like disassemble it on the back of a truck and then reassemble it on some other wooded hillside. Was this a call that you made that Casey made? How did this end up here?
3: Yeah. The initial conversation was one that I initiated because we were starting to get a ton of readers who were really upset about us being on Substack. It kind of all started with this Atlantic article where a writer had identified a bunch of Nazi blogs, he said, on Substack. And I think the headline of that article was like, Substack has a Nazi problem. And we have a ton of readers who are trust and safety professionals, who are content moderation professionals. They think really deeply about this. So immediately we were inundated with people being like, well, then why are you on Substack? And Casey and I have like a two week break in... December. And so I was like, Oh, I'll use that time to do a bunch of book stuff that I need to do. (laughs) But almost immediately, it was clear that like, this was a problem that we needed to deal with. So I remember I called Casey, and I was like, Hey, have you seen this like feedback that we're getting? And he was kind of like, Yes, I think we should just like, wait a second and see how this plays out. And I was still at this point, like really thinking through It wasn't immediately apparent to me that this was a problem and we needed to like get off Substack because I was kind of like, do we want it moderating content for us? Like, I don't know. But then when we started thinking about the features that it had rolled out in the past year, like a recommendation algorithm and notes, which is kind of a Twitter clone and I think the addition of those features were what kind of flipped it for us because they weren't just hosting the far right content. They were actually allowing it to monetize and they were revenue sharing with it. So Substack was actually profiting off of that content. And then there was a possibility that platformer would be recommended alongside one of these far right blogs. So we'd worked with outside researchers to identify kind of like what's the worst of the worst of what Substack has to offer. And I actually read their Substacks signed up for them, like had to (laughs) come through it, not the paid ones, but just the free ones. And then I kind of tagged them as like, okay, this is like something that is illegal and against Substack's terms of service. And then we brought that list to Substack and said like, hey, if you can remove truly the worst of the worst, the ones that are against your own content guidelines, you know, that would be a good first step. And not to get like too in the weeds of this whole decision, but they removed some of those blogs and then they also fed that story to like a pretty friendly to their point of view journalist to be like basically people are making a mountain out of a molehill like this is just six blogs we're talking about and at that point that was such a misrepresentation of what actually happened we had identified 45 blogs and that was just the six that were like clearly against the existing terms of service. And so we, we just felt like for a bunch of reasons, it was kind of time to leave. And the last thing I'll say about this is just, we were paying Substack a shit ton of money. <laughs> like they take 10% of your revenue. So it felt like, okay, we could go to Ghost. You know, we're paying a 10th of as much as we were paying to Substack and they don't have any recommendation features. We don't feel like they're trying to be a social platform. So it's just going to be like an easier place to do business.
2: I'll let you go shortly, but that's an interesting thing to think about that I don't feel like everyone who runs a newsletter has to think about, which is sort of the pressure of their own readers and their own readers' expectations of not only what they publish, but in what manner they publish, where have you found points in running platformer where you're like, I'm at odds with our readers. like I disagree with our readers or our readers want us to do this, but we don't want to do that.
3: I definitely, there were points in writing about the Elon Musk saga when I was like, we are spending a lot of time talking about this one person in this company when there's a lot else going on in the world. And it was so clear from a numbers perspective that it was like a lucrative thing to write about. Like we were just getting so many people sign up for the newsletter and we were having conversations of like, okay, this is fine right now, but if it lasts another three months, we want to just like make a purposeful choice to change course. And I think luckily interest in it started to decline at the peak point of when we were like, we can't keep writing exclusively about Elon Musk. We have to kind of make a change. But I definitely did kind of see the incentive structure for Substack or for newsletters, I guess, generally can be, it's like, yeah, if you're getting you know thousands of people signing up every day when you write about this one thing, and then when you write about, you know, child sexual exploitation and the latest research report from Thorne, two people sign up, you're kind of like, well, I guess I should write about Elon Musk again. But that's, I think, luckily being a two person team, we can kind of make strategic decisions around like, yeah, but we want to be a newsletter that investigates a whole bunch of different things and has like a point of view on what's important, not just the newsletter that writes about Elon Musk.
2: Yeah, that echoes something you said earlier where you were like, you know, when this Elon Musk thing started happening, you could just immediately be like, oh my God, this is going to be like a, a great story for us. I guess my question is like, is it difficult not to root for apocalypse and that like tech apocalypse is like great for a platformer and allows you to really use your skills to the fullest of, of your abilities?
3: yeah, this is something I've actually been struggling with since I came back from book leave and thinking about a lot because I think platformer and then like my niche in particular is really like horrible thing happened. Here's like the inside story. And my brand is so closely associated with that now that it's hard to write the like, here's a new technology that could have good ramifications for the world type of story because People are, they doubt that that's like actually what I'm doing. And, and I'm interested in both. Like, I think, you know, as a journalist, there's nothing more fun than like, horrible thing happened. Here's the inside scoop. Like, I do love that story, but I think I want to be more well rounded as a reporter. And I'm still figuring out how to kind of make that shift.
2: Final question What are you interested in now? Or like, when you imagine coming back to the game, like, are there like threads that are particularly interesting to you of, of what's happening right now?
3: I'm always kind of between like, do I want to go really hard on one company or do I want to kind of have a theme that I'm going after? And I think my dream right now would be like the inside open AI reporter. Like I just feel like that company is mysterious and juicy and and there's been kind of reporting on like the boardroom level, but like what are the employees thinking? Like what's the kind of ground level? What's going on there? And who's actually building this technology that's going to be and already is so influential. So that's kind of the the nut that I would most like to crack next. I actually, um, my like fallback strategy as a reporter, um, when I don't have like a good story is I'll just go on LinkedIn or Twitter and message like as many employees as I can until essentially the platform tells me that I look like spam and I have to stop. And I did that with <laughs> open AI a month or two back to the point where the comms person who like is friendly with Casey emailed him and was like, get like, your reporter on another, like, this is stressing everyone out. Can you like make her go away? Um, which he was like, this is a great sign. Keep doing what you're doing. And I I do appreciate that in a boss, but if there's any kind of beat that I could pick moving forward, that would be it.
2: Zoe, um, thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed the book.
3: Thank you so much for having me on.
2: Hey, thanks for listening to the Longform Podcast. This episode was edited by Susan Peterson, who also did the show notes. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Vox Media helps us put together the show. We'll be back with a brand new episode next week.
0: Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath, then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Terms
1: apply. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work.